Norwegian Wood was written by John when I was with him on holiday. Uh, John and Sin and Judy and I went for a holiday uh, in St Moritz. We went, had a skiing holiday. None of us had skied before except Judy. She, she'd done it and I hadn't and neither John or Sin. And so it was a, a great fun. And uh, although we were pursued by photographers and so on, I managed to do a deal with them and said, look, we'll give you one session if you leave us alone. And they did. It was quite all right. And we had a very nice time. We shared a, a suite up in, in the, the Palace Hotel in St Moritz. And a lot of people thought we were raving and nightclubbing and so on. We, after our skiing, we were so tired, we'd go back to our rooms and, and play Monopoly and, and have hot cocoa, you know. Very, very boring. But during that time, he was writing Norwegian Wood. And, of course, looking back on it, I often think some of the lyrics, I once had a girl... Or should I say, she once had me. And of course, Sin <laughs> married John when she already was on the way with Julian. And I'm wondering how much of that was in the lyric. And it wasn't long after that they split up, which was very sad. Welcome to this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm Marty Corbell. Well, we're going to start with the sad news. Jenny Lane passed away on the morning of December 5th, the 50th anniversary of um, Band on the Room. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute here as well. But sad news, although we, we know he's been suffering from the uh, interstitial lung disease for at least the last couple of months. I mean, I know I was hoping that he'd pull through, especially with this concert and, you know, and the, the auctioning of selling off of things as well to, to make money for his treatment. Yeah, what can you do? What can you say? Not too much. Paul did put out an announcement, and he put it out pretty rapidly. Of course, it helps that he's in relatively the same time zone. That's true. And, and I do think he wrote it himself. I don't think this was ghostwritten by anybody else. Just reading a little bit from this... I am very saddened to hear that my ex-bandmate, Denny Lane, has died. He and I wrote some songs together, the most successful being Mull of Kentire, which was a big hit in the 70s. We had drifted apart, but in recent years managed to reestablish our friendship and share memories of our times together. Denny was a great talent with a fine sense of humor and was always ready to help other people. He will be missed by all his fans and remembered with great fondness by his friends. That's an 
excerpt. The whole statement is on the interwebs in various places. You know, I think he's certainly being nice. I don't know whether they ever actually got back together in a friendly manner. I certainly haven't heard anything about that of late. Yeah, I um, particularly like the honesty in, in the post that he put up as well, where he admitted that, well, everybody knew that, you know, that they'd been distant over the times, but they but Paul then said that they'd sort of almost made up and were back to being friends again. But like you said, you know, other than that one photograph of them at the UB40 concert, I don't know if I know of any other time that Paul and Denny have met up. When Denny played at that McCartney show, the tribute show in New York City, was that earlier this year or was that last year? I think everybody's still in COVID time, so nobody knows which year is which nowadays. <laughs> it may have been earlier this year. It may have been late last year. Paul sent cards out to everybody who played in the show. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm honored, blah, blah, blah. And he sent the same card to everyone, including Denny. He did not personalize it one little bit. We're going to talk a bit more about Denny and his Wings era. The one thing I did want to bring up here, do you think the million pounds that Paul gave him, I think it was a million pounds, it may have been a million dollars, that Paul gave him for his half of Mullen McIntyre was a fair amount? I mean, that's a big song. Yeah, I think Paul's probably made a heck of a lot more than that out of that song. Well, and mind you, this was in the 80s, and Denny was in desperate need of cash at that time. So, I mean, you know, obviously if he's going to sell his song royalties in favor of a big immediate payout, I just don't know whether a million, be it dollars or pounds, uh, was sufficient for the half of the rights. but. It certainly wasn't Paul taking advantage of Denny. No, I don't think so. It's not the same as back in the day when uh, songwriters used to have, didn't have any rights and they were owned by the record or the publishing company and they got 0%. I think this is something a lot more friendly than that. They did all get money from the reissues, every member of, of Wink, so I'm guessing that Denny probably got a larger percent as a songwriter even though paul bought the rights essentially hopefully i mean you know and, and he didn't he didn't buy all the rights i don't think it's just Mall kentire in particular that we know that he bought from denny there was a nice comment left by brian gray as well you know on on the official denny lane post that that you know that denny's wife uh, elizabeth put out my heart goes out to you elizabeth although we've never met i knew denny a bit and was so lucky to him. I look forward to the next time we have Darren Murphy on the show with us. We can we can have a nice chat about uh, the Todd Rundgren tour again because, well, Denny Lane was part of that. It's strange, you know, you look at all these people, you think of all the circles that Denny Lane was within. So, you know, you've got posts from Nancy Wilson, who he's played with, from Hard, 
and all these other people. And you do get the understanding from what Paul put on in his post about it, what he wrote, that Danny was this sort of person who was almost like the musician who you could just throw into anywhere and he would be friendly with anybody and it just seemed like that to me. It seemed like it anyway. Well, it's a little bit like the the reputation that Rango has, you know. Yeah, absolutely. He's the guy that you can call on and, and he will come through for you. Didn't they say that the tug-of-war sessions were helped by the fact that Denny was the sort of person that almost like a ringleader that helped with getting people into the right places and that even though Denny's not all over the album, wrote, it was almost like he was an integral part in that transitional period. We will get back to Denny in this show. We got a couple other little news bits that we want to talk about. Sean Lennon and Peter Jackson worked together on an animated film, a short, an 11-minute short, that was inspired by Happy Christmas War is Over. It was directed by Pixar alumnus Dave Mullins. I love that they're doing this. I think it does need something special. Sean says that the song just felt like it deserved some kind of piece to help get it out there for another generation. And while I don't necessarily agree that War is Over needs the boost, I think it's a good thing to get it out there, certainly in front of the next generation. And animated shorts are absolutely one way to do that. Some people misunderstand the song and just see it as a perennial Christmas song, but it's much more than that. So essentially, Sean is trying to get out the peace message in there more than it just being, oh, it's a Christmas song. I'm so glad that they didn't go with the obvious. I mean, Paul did it in Pipes of Peace and go through the the soccer playing truce from World War One. Uh, he came up with a different spin on it. Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, it, is my, it is my favorite Christmas song. <laughs> Even if it is stolen from Stewball, but uh, the, uh, the description of it from this Hollywood Reporter article is that uh, the animated movie is about a chess game played across enemy lines with the help of a heroic carrier pigeon. So it's something different. It's the same general idea, but it's not the same story which we've heard and seen any number of times. Peter Jackson says that they were working on the script, and I first heard from Sean a few weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, and it was very clearly an important project for him. I remember telling him that an animated short film would take 12 to 14 months to make, and there was a very good chance the war in Ukraine will resolve by the time it was finished. Well, that's a bad prediction. Here we are, and not only is the misery in Ukraine continuing with no end in sight, there's now the war in Gaza. Absolutely. Please remember peace is how we make it, as Ringo told us. It's a shame that a song like this is still needed and that these things are still going on. Yeah, and and I mean, to a certain extent, it only seems to be getting worse. But we can't allow cynicism and desperation to overtake us. 44 years ago, John and Yoko wrote a holiday song unlike any other. It's the perfect greeting for this time of year with an eternal message of peace and of hope. To perform Happy Christmas, War is Over, please welcome Cheryl Crow, Peter Frampton, and Aloe Black with a little help from the Stuttering Association for the Youth.
Rob Reiner is doing Spinal Tap 2, and the guests in it include Elton John, Garth Brooks, and Sir Paul. Sir Paul acting in a film again. That should go down well. Shock and horror. What they're saying is that they're kind of using the last waltz as the basis, so that should be kind of interesting. Well, it's a good thing to use as a basis, because that's brilliant. Last waltz. I would like to see all of them show up as extra Spinal Tap drummers. And they all spontaneously combust. Then they come back as themselves for, like, interviews and things. Because, I mean, that was the other thing about Last Waltz was that it had all these clips from all these other really famous musicians talking about how great the band was. Well, they're not wrong. But, uh, y- yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so long as they don't stick Sir Paul into uh, into that egg that doesn't that gets stuck and doesn't open. <laughs> All of the original Spinal Tap is still with us, as is Rob Reiner. So, I mean, a lot of people are saying, what the heck, why are they doing this? Uh, you know, if it's a, not a success, oh well. It's not going to hurt the reputation of the original. No. Paul has announced that in February we are getting a, another version of Band on the Run. Well, it's not like they've reissued it before, is it? Oh, only about six times. Yeah, I think I have three of those, personally. There's two separate versions of the CD. There's the Super Deluxe Edition. There is the 25th Anniversary Edition. That's four just on CD. And there are at least two separate versions that have come out on vinyl over the years. I have as many copies of Band on the Run as I do Sgt. Pepper. And that's saying something. It is. Yes, very similar covers as well. (laughs) the word is that what's new and the reason that we're going to buy this thing again is it's going to contain what paul is calling an underdubbed version of the album so is it the natural guide tracks that's what it would seem to be it would seem to be paul doing kind of the same thing that john lennon did or yoko ono did for double fantasy stripped 
fascinating to hear what the original track that they recorded was that everything else was placed on. But I'm not 100% sure that that's what it'll be. I think it'll just be the songs without any orchestration or any of the London overdubs. We're still not getting the tape, which we are told exists in the MPL vaults. The demos that got stolen in Africa. Maybe Paul still wants to stick to that story. Even if they didn't want to stick to that story, they could just put an ad out in Africa and say, uh, Oi, we need those tapes back. We'll give you money for them. (laughs) Or just pretend, maybe. Come out with a good story. (laughs) So, as you say, today, as we're recording this, is the 50th anniversary of Band on the Run. We're actually going to start getting some of the preview tracks here in the next week, they say. I'm looking forward to that. I think the underdub band on the run is going to be on the internet this week. I hope they're not just releasing the songs that we already know, well, incredibly well. Uh, I do hope that they are releasing the underdub version so that we can, you know, up to them so that we can hear what they're like as opposed to songs that we've already heard a few times. So let's go back to Danny a little bit before we get into what we were actually here for, the first uh, 11 tracks on Red 2023. We've had a lot of Danny Lane both in this show and in Toppermost over the last year, haven't we? We have. Well, you know, when Danny's uh, doing lead vocal and on an incredible chart hit, you've got to talk about it on Toppermost. Well, I mean, there's that, and there's the fact that we talked about the show that the Beatles did with Denny and the Diplomats, where the Beatles were late, and Denny had to extend his set, and he played Havin' Aguila with the guitar behind his back. Great story, and it continues our run of, here's everything we can find about Havin' Aguila in the Beatles story. Yep, and if you want an ELO connection, the drummer of Denny and the Diplomats was Bev Bevan from the ELO. Uh, And then... The early Moody's was part of NAMS, which was kind of a surprise to both of us a little bit. Yeah, it really did surprise me. I didn't know that at all. But then again, it's sort of understandable when you see them on the same bill as the Beatles quite a few times as well. And there's a Frida Kelly story, which you can go find. We have told it both on this show and on Top Remost. Really, really fun stuff. And then... The thing that we probably know him most for, his time with Wings. Wings was defined by the Paul End and Denny Harmonies. It's the one thing that lasted through all the different eras of Wings, and it's really what glued that group together as a band. Dare I go into the opinion of mine that Denny is sometimes given a bit short shrift in the, the history of Wings? There is a whole album worth of Denny Lane songs when you go across the Wings songbook. Does that include songs that they didn't? releases wings as well there are more than a dozen songs that denny sings lead or co-sings lead on and wrote as well so you know you've got like no words started as a denny song and paul finished that with him and i got the list here so why don't we just go chronologically if you want to throw something in let's throw something in okay so we start with red rose speedway denny had two songs on it i would only smile and i lie around i love i lie around just because it's such a lazy feel-good kind of song so do i i like i would only smile as well i think that's an easygoing composition by denny it fits well in 
the Red Rose Speedway album, although it fits better in the double-disc version of Red Rose Speedway. I think so, as well. And then on Band on the Run, which we're just about to get yet another version of, he sings not quite half, but he does sing some of the verses of Picasso's last words. He does. And then his tour de force is no words. Incredible guitar that our friend Sam Wiles always mentions in his show, Paul or Nothing. Venus and Mars, you got Spirits of Ancient Egypt, which is actually probably amongst my favorites of the Denny Lane songs, although more for the live version than for the studio version. The studio version is slightly gimmicky, I think. Agreed. I like the live version a lot more. But that's a Paul right, isn't it? That is a Paul right, yes. And I kind of wonder why Paul gave away some of these songs. Sometimes, but then I've heard versions of songs that Paul has given away to other wing singers, and there's one in particular, isn't there, off um, Wings at the Speed of Sound that he gave to Joe. And then I've heard the version that Paul sang initially, and I actually thought, you know, I can understand why they went with Joe singing it. Then on to Speed of Sound, there's Time to Hide, which is a pure Denny Lane song, and then The Note That You Never Wrote, which is a Paul Wright, which he gave to Denny. What made Paul decide, okay, I'm giving this to Denny? Or is it a case of almost going back to Beatles days when Paul and John would write songs for Ringo or for somebody else or for George? I like the tune, but those lyrics are terrible. It's one of those songs where John Lennon would say it doesn't really go anywhere. We've had a lot of those on top of most of late. It's an okay song, and I have no problem with where the tune is trying to go, but the lyrics are just, what are you trying to say here, Paul? You can almost hear John Lennon saying that if you tried that in the beat. <laughs> then the Wings Over America set. You got Richard Corey, which is a Denny doing just a great cover of the Simon and Garfunkel tune. Absolutely. And uh, a killer performance of Go Now. It's kind of hard to believe that they didn't play that in every show on that Wings Over America tour. It was only probably about three quarters of the shows that they played Go Now. In his post about Denny, he actually name checks that song as well. He specifically mentions that it's a Bessie Banks tune and that Denny just killed it on it. Yeah, he does. As we were just saying, the live version of Spirits of Ancient Egypt, which I like better than the album version. I agree with you on that. And then London Town. Oh, yes, London Town. That's a tour de force for Denny. Deliver Your Children is a great track. Yes, it really is. I have kind of mixed feelings about Children, Children, though. It sounds like a cartoon theme. I mean, it's supposed to sound like a children's song. It's kind of supposed to be tapping into that Yellow Submarine vibe, but it doesn't completely work for me. London Town, you've got a lot of songs that Denny has written or co-written on it. Well, you've got the title track. Isn't that a co-write as well? Yeah. And then, of course, as mentioned, right about this time, Mall of Kentire was co-written by Paul and Denny. That is the best-selling single, I think, that Wings ever released. For a period of time, the biggest selling single ever, it took over from She Loves You in Britain. Yep, so it stayed that until the charity single band-aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, in 1984. We're not just mentioning this list because Denny passed, but to just kind of remind you, Denny Lane did just some tremendous work in Wings. I think Paul saying at some points, definitely in Wingspan, where it was basically him and Linda, I always see it as... Yeah, I can understand that it's a project for him and Linda to do together. But I think all three of them were integral to the wing sound, especially, like you said, with their vocals, because there's nothing else like those vocals. 
wingspan is definitely when things were not particularly good between Paul and Denny. I do think they got along a little bit better, but Denny is almost completely ignored in the lyrics book as well. Right. Yes. We talked last time briefly about the podcast where Paul is talking about Mull of Kintyre. He does not bring up Denny's name once in that show, and presumably he didn't bring it up very much in the interviews he was doing with Paul Muldoon. Yes, I singled that particular point out in my blog post about listening to that show as well. I would say make that playlist, give it a listen. All we can say is rest in peace, and we're so sorry that we've lost. Definitely a great musician, definitely a great guitar player, and the Wings Over America group, considering that Joe English is, he's still with us, but he's not going to talk about Paul ever again. He's kind of gone into the... uh, a Christian music thing and has decided that nope, I'm never going to bring up the McCartney and Wings stories ever again. So Paul's the only one we have to talk about the Wings Over America tour. Yes. Well, and the horn players. Yeah. We, we might get something from Harry Casey. Still, I mean, the horn players were not central to the tour. They were there and I mean, they went on the tour, but I mean, they, for the most part, were even in like separate hotels and things. They're not members of the band, are they, even? Yeah, I think Paul treats the Hot City Horns a little bit better than he did the horn section on Wings Over America. That's good to know. In the time we have remaining for this show, we've got 11 tracks off of the 2023 version of the Red Album. If you want to hear our thoughts on the first 19, uh, go back to our show from last week. We had a great time talking about what's new and what's different about the 2023 mixes. Absolutely. Oh, uh, and before we go on, Ringo has a new book out, Beats and Threads. He's talking about his drums, and he's talking about his clothes. I guess uh, Deirdre will be quite happy, although Ringo really should have pulled her in on this book. She's the expert. He's getting the drum guy to talk about the clothes. They still fit. He put on the Sergeant Pepper jacket again. Yes, he does. You know, it wasn't like where he appeared to be wearing it, and they just photoshopped him into it this time he actually pulled it off the mannequin and put his arms through the sleeves so he can still wear the pepper jacket i can't wear clothes that i was wearing all those years ago disc two of the red album starts with help john's vocal wow it is very much the pleading vocal that john lennon always wanted it to be yes help me get my feet back on the ground How clear that the snare drum is, by the way. You can hear it uh, there with the with the snare turned off, so that they've just got that there without the the, the metallic 
back in of the drum roll, if that makes any sense. Unlike some of the drum rolls on the first CD that we talked about, it's good and loud and to the fore here. I agree with you about the, the, the tambourine. It's very quick. And I'm wondering if that's actually on his drum kit. I've never done before. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate. They must have put it up there and he must be just, you know, tapping it with the drumstick rather yeah. than, you know, hitting it. Yeah, he must be doing it. Either that or he's got really fast hands. Well, we know he's got really fast hands, but that's true. we're in agreement that it is probably him just playing it attached to something. Either that or he's doing a Ray Cooper with the fingers on it. What did we say last time? We said Ray Cooper eat your heart out. We did. That's true. <laughs> Call back. The tom sound really, really good here. The whole drum kit sounds really good. The whole kit. I mean, everything is separated. Everything is clear. You've got the slight stereo effect on the drums, and it works perfectly here. It does. I like the sound of the guitar like you do as well. I'm thinking that these guitars were probably recorded with these effects on them while they were recording, as opposed to anything added in post. As I was saying, John's lead vocal, particularly when he gets to that, won't you please, please help me? It's like, oh, wow. That's what John Lennon always complained about was that, oh, you know, too slow. Oh, oh, we had to make it a fast song because it was going into the film. But even though it's a fast song, he's dropping every bit of the emotion in there that he can make. And now we can finally hear it. Yeah, he's definitely got that sound of pleading that he wanted. I mean, you know, he always said that he wanted to be like the Roy Orbison version. And what this mix proves is it doesn't need to be slow to be in that mold. In real life, you can have that sort of like pleading for something when you're, yeah, the vocals definitely got that to it. Whereas before, and it was sort of almost lost among everything else. And then as we described last time, it goes on for about a second further and you get the outro, the harmonies in the outro, more of that is just great. It's better. It is. It really is. It shines. As we go through this disc, you can see the evolution much better. You, you can feel the evolution. As we moved on from the first disc, you know, we had things like For Me To You and even Twist and Shout, which were just basically let's reproduce things live. And as we move on to the Help album, and particularly as we move on to rubber soul you can see how they're starting to use the studio i'm hoping that when they go to do the main sets that these are from i'm hoping that they do some more some more of this separation and uh, isolated sections as well to show you how these songs were built up sean has actually been doing it correctly with the Lennon sets you know showing not only how you go from take to take but how the song is constructed i love what he does there with the elements mixes on on the, the Johnston. Where we don't have outtakes, I would love, particularly by this point, you could have just marvelous elements mixes.
track number two, you got to hide your love away. My immediate thought is, you know, this feels a little bit less Dylan-ish, and that's not a bad thing. I think they've brought something different out of it by the fact that John sounds less Dylan and... More like himself. I don't know whether it's a good comparison, but I listened to this and I was thinking of almost working-class hero-ish. I'm not sure. This certainly feels, to a certain extent, like something that goes on plastic on a band. And it's all the better for it. Lots of good stuff with the tambourine, which, of course, takes you back to the scene in the film. Where Ringo's there doing his Ray Cooper impression, sat in the hole in the floor. And the roadie, which we now know is Mal Evans. I mean, not actually, but they had to have been thinking of Mal when they had their roadie there cutting the grass with the chattering teeth. It's like, that's something I could see John Lennon telling Mal to do. Mal, cut the grass. Get out of the lawn mower. <laughs> After reading Ken Womack's book, it's like, okay, there you have it. Mal was there to do everything at their beck and call. And he didn't mind. If she's gone, I can't go on Feeling too foot small Everywhere people stare Each and every day I can see them laugh at me And I hear them say Hey, you've got to hide your love away The acoustic guitar is slightly backgrounded, I think, but that's not a negative. The playing actually comes through a little bit more clearly because of the separation. If I'm being honest, I think I prefer the mixes on the second disc to the, to the first, even though I do love those. The guitars, through most of these, they're not out front, but they're just almost in the right place. And the separation of the guitars helps to push it even more, even though they're not front and centre. You can hear them almost more distinctly, which is a strange thing to say. And the flute sounds a little bit different. I don't know whether it's Mal or just the fact that it's now in isolation. My thought when I was listening to it is like, that's not the same. Well, they did do more than one take of the flute, didn't they? I think so. You might have an alternative uh, take of the the flute from a different recording attempt. I suppose, but I I also think if that were the case, they would have told us. That's true. I mean, all of the individual tracks, from what we've been told, they just sent Peter Jackson the raw stereo and said here demix this right track three we can work it out there seems to be a bit more reverb on paul's lead try to see it my way do i have to keep on talking till i can go on while you see it your way run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone we can work it out Work it out and get it straight. I'll say good night. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life 
I do love on the acoustic guitar that you can hear the rhythm really well on it. I think that's gorgeous rhythm that's being played on there. I think that's John, perhaps, or is John just playing the harmonium? I think John may have done some overdubs. Yeah, he's definitely got that almost staggered thing going on on the acoustic guitar where it's like stop starting the rhythm to be able to get like a, something a bit off going in, going in. And speaking of the harmonium, we get a lot cleaner sound on the harmonium here. You can definitely hear everything that's going on on the harmonium, for sure. I mean, you can hear the air going through the bladder. Yes. The whole song, it's almost like you can hear the room in the song as well. Well, and that may be why Giles did what we spoke of in part one, in disc one, you know, where he actually played things back through the studio was to get more of the room feel in. Yep, and I think it works beautifully. It works for this song, for sure. There's a little bit of guitar, which I hadn't heard before, going into the Think of What You're Saying piece. Just a little bit, which is something that you've noticed on at least one other song here in this set. Yes. I did notice that here. There's a little bit of extra guitar. Now, it may not be extra. I haven't gone back to listen closely to either the previous stereo mix or the mono mix to compare. It may be there, but if so, it's certainly more up front here. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, there's probably a lot more. There's probably bits that we haven't noticed. Where There's the same thing where there's almost like something in the background on the original recording, but they brought it more to the front so that you can actually hear it more, perhaps. Tambourine and more tambourine and more tambourine. Much more than I ever thought was in this song. Yes. I'd only sort of been vaguely aware of it before, and now it's like, oh, that's there. It's there all the time. The drums sound great. Every song we're going to say that. The drums win. They do, yeah. John's isolated vocal in the harmony, it is just breathtaking here. It is. And then the harmony with John and Paul, it's something else. They really got down the fill and don to a, to a T, didn't they? And then the outro, which is again slightly longer, it feels a bit more powerful here than it's felt in some of the previous mixes. The mix breathes, essentially. It lets the song almost dictate the mix as opposed to like, oh, we've got to get it down to this. It's got life to it. All right, on to Day Tripper. Still, I mean, again, we talk about separation, kind of usually taking a bit of the life out of it. Not here. No. That is a nice, dirty guitar riff. I'm going to say the same later for another song as well. 
Well, especially when you consider that we were saying about revolution that, you know, revolution is maybe not quite as good. The guitar sound as opposed to some of the previous mixes here. That's not the case here. It's excellent. It is really is drums and the tambourine are good as well. Ringo is maybe slightly lower in the mix, but again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, because this song is instrument-wise all about the guitar riff, to me anyway. But if you listen to Ringo's playing, particularly behind the She's a Big Teaser and then the Tried to Please Her, that is hot. She's a big teaser. Separated guitars. The separated guitars, they're all over how they've mixed it so that you've got all the guitars separate to each other and you can hear them all in their own little area of the, the stereo field. The Lennon lead vocal, getting a clean copy of it and then putting it back in better than it's ever been. And then the interplay of the two guitars, them going off against each other. And then working the way back so that they're back together again. It's almost like jazz that they've gone away and then they've returned back. And then the end of the song, John, Paul, and George singing together, even though all they're singing are just the ahs, it's like, oh, that's wonderful. Sounds beautiful, that. It's perfect. And it reminds you that the Beatles knew how to end a song. They knew how to leave you wanting more. Day Tripper is probably one of my favorite mixes off of this set. I get to my favorite later, do we? Yeah, I think so. We're moving on to Rubber Soul. We start off with Drive My Car. The bass is good and solid. Once again, the tambourines. The very clear beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 yeah. The mix of John and Paul's voice where it sounds like a single voice, but you know and can hear them each doing their own thing on it. It's distinct, but it still sounds like a single voice. Yes. That's a little magic trick there. Yeah. But they both said in interviews over the years, didn't they, that they could almost, almost copy each other in essence. They were that close to each other sometimes that they, they were so perfectly tuned to each other because of that. Cowbell again? Yep, more cowbell. And then the guitar at the outro, it's louder than it's ever been. And this is the one where I was saying around the 140 mark, there's a barely audible guitar in the background. There's this guitar, and it's doing a call and response that I have never heard in this song before. So you'll have them singing a line, and then you'll get a guitar responding. And every time they sing a line in the verse at this point, at this section, they have a responding guitar in the background that, like I said, I've never heard this before. Although I pulled out the mono mix and sent that to you, it's there. It's not quite as complete and it's not quite as far to the fore as it is in this mix. Do you think it's because of the separation they've got on with all the guitars rather than them all being bumped up together? I think so. You can now hear everything in its own element. Maybe you can drive my car, and maybe I love you. I told that girl I 
And these little bit, you know, George has always said that his guitar on Drive My Car was kind of borrowed from respect, and I had never heard it. And here I can get it. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Even down to the response, because, you know, a lot of Otis Redding, you'll have responding guitar in there from Steve Crop. Some of their interview statements now make more sense. They do. All right, Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown is track number six, The Sitar. That's what a sitar is supposed to sound like, huh? noticed how you've got the acoustic guitar lead to one side and the sitar to the other and that's the nicest thing is you've got the separation between those two so you can hear them almost copying each other but not quite and I think that's really nice where sometimes the acoustic guitar isn't doing the same thing it's almost harmonizing in some points but the line that the sitar is doing and I think it works better for that. As you had mentioned in the disc one show Paul is singing the high harmony here. I actually think this is a good tour de force for Paul with that. And that Rickenbacker bass sounds absolutely gorgeous with the, you know, the bass all the way up and the treble almost quarter of the way. So you've got a bit of definition there without losing the deep tone as well. That bass is gorgeous. And the bass and the tambourine are playing off of each other. Yes, they are. So, I mean, you can tell that they were definitely recording those at the same time. That Ringo was watching Paul and Paul was watching Ringo. You don't think that they were separate when they did that, then? You think they were both in the same room together doing that? That would be my guess. I'd have to check on that, but I would bet that it's on the same track, the same piece of tape. Right. Or it could just be that they knew each other so well that once one had finished their part, it's like, oh, I know what I can do with that. I would love an isolated mix for this song, where you've got the little bits going in and out and showing you how it was built up all the different elements then the harmony again john and paul's almost fusing into a single voice like on drive my car but it's a little bit different as well because paul's keeping to the high harmony a little bit more yes she told me she worked in the morning and started to laugh i told her i didn't and crawled up to sleep in the bath Track number seven, Nowhere Man. Famously, John has always been a little bit flat on the opening, the harmony there. It sounds like, while he didn't fix it completely, it sounds like they mostly fixed it. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making What do you think's the problem that John has? Do you think that 
they tried to start the song possibly without having a chord or a note to base it off, and they tried to do it clean without... Yeah, yeah. That, that would seem reasonable, yes. I mean, this is going in the weeds, but normally, if you're recording something like this, you wouldn't hear it on the recording, but you'd have somebody playing like a chord or something or a note to base what you start with, but you don't hear that on the eventual mix. But like I said, I think here what they've done is they've just started clean without having that chord there to base it on. Well, and John is normally very good at that. And it's not like it's way flat. Obviously, if it was way flat, they would have gone and done another take. But it has always just kind of been, oh, well, that's just not quite right. Listen to the Mr. Moonlight outtake for, for something similar. And here, they fixed it just enough. I don't think they auto-tuned it. I think it may have just been, you could play with the tonality a little bit once they have pulled his isolated vocal out. This now really feels like a predecessor to Revolver. It does, and it makes me look forward to the release of this. The full thing. This is now half the album that we're getting here, so. I have issues with that, because you've got a lot of these albums where you've got songs, but is it Beatles for Sale, where you've got one song on on the set and nothing else? Eight days a week, that's it. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, by the time you get to this track, you can just see the evolution, see the growth happening in real time. Like you said, you can see the stages now from... So this is the next step after the Help album, and you can see how the, how it's transitioned between there and it goes into Revolver. Like you said, you can see see that evolution going on. Well, and this also makes the comment that John and George have made through the years that Rubber Soul and Revolver kind of felt like one long record in that they were in that same groove for both records. It hadn't necessarily seemed that way just listening to the previous mixes. Now it's like, Oh, I get it. Do you think the way that the albums were altered people's perceptions of what what the albums were about? Well, I mean, certainly the way we got Rubber Soul here in the States, that version of the album, in addition to being much less of a John Lennon album, it is very much an acoustic, folky kind of record, whereas the actual version, the British version, is less that way. Yeah, there's more variety on the British version. Although we do have to remember, the version that Brian Wilson heard that blew him away was the American version of Rubber Soul. Going off of these mixes, you know, all the old tropes about this was the acoustic album, this was the pot album. While it's not untrue, it is not completely the case. No. And then at the end, uh, when Paul comes out with that little slightly harsh... Uh, uh, making all his nowhere plans for nobody, that's been reduced down in the mix, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Making all his nowhere plans for nobody. In that extra little bit of the song we get an extra crash from Ringo and that's good. You never get enough crash. After saying that we now go into two very definitely acoustic songs from Rubber Soul. The first one of which Bob Dylan didn't used to like. So we start with track number eight, Michelle. The Bob Dylan thing is that Bob Dylan said that this reminded him of Tin Pan Alley. 
<laughs> but it isn't. Ringo's playing behind Paul's vocal. That interplay, that is very different than it's ever been. And it is gorgeous. Michelle, my belle, these are words that go together well. My Michelle. Michelle, my belle, Sunday Is he doing his version of what um, Keith Moon used to do then with The Who, where he played behind the vocal with, with Roger Daltrey and filled in the gaps between the vocals? And Ringo's playing style through the whole song, you can see, again, going back to Ringo's interviews, where he says, oh, well, I mean, the thing about that era was that I would get to a new album and I would adopt a new style just for that record. And you can hear, I mean, this is the Ringo Rubber Soul style of playing. But if they ended up doing the songs live, it'd end up doing a completely different thing on drums anyway. How many of the songs did they do live? Not that many of them. I mean, Nowhere Man and Paperback Writer and If I Needed Someone, so... That was it. We'll get to that one uh, soon. Yeah, well, Paul is up front with the harmonies. The uh, instruments are slightly back in the mix. Yeah, but because they've done a really good job of being able to separate all of the instruments, even if they're back in the mix, you can still hear them really clearly. The guitar sounds wonderful. Again, I think Mal may be a little bit better at pulling out all of the nuance of the acoustic guitars rather than the electric. Yeah, I noticed that as well, that the electric's not as out there as it could be. The acoustic guitar is more of the, the thing, yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking about the nylon strings on disc one. This is the same kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. The middle eight bit, the Nina Simone bit where Paul is going, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's no longer just smoochy Paul going, oh, I love you, girl. It almost kind of reminds me of what we're going to get in Happy Together. Yes. Oh, I love you, but I can't have you. That's yeah. all I want to say until I find a way... To say the only words I know that you'll understand. It had never felt that way to me before. I love you, I love you, I love you. That's all I want to say. Until I find a way, I will say the only words I know that you understand. I love you. So now it's less like that scene from Singing in the Rain then where they're doing the film and it's like, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. He is crying out to this girl. It's like, you're beautiful, I want you, I need you, but you don't understand me and we're not going to make this happen because you don't understand me. Well, is it like a yearning? Yeah, a yearning. Yeah. Which is just a feel that Michelle has always been kind of perceived as this upbeat kind of song a love song dedicated to this woman. It's not. It's a song about 
I want to make this happen and I don't know how to make this happen. I mean, again, the obvious comparison is Happy Together, where it's, you know, which of course ends with that how is the weather thing. Yes. It's a girl at the bus stop and I'm never going to be able to make it happen. But same thing here. Absolutely. Okay, track number nine in my life. And for a song that we've heard so many times, it feels completely different. But of all these friends and lovers, there is no one compares with you. And these memories lose their meaning. And I think of love as something new. Though I know I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. Is that George doing that guitar line, or is that John that's do, do, do? Is that George or John? I think that's George. That jumps out at me. I, I love the sound of that guitar line that, that George is doing. The, the vocals are the, the three part vocals are gorgeous. You know, and Paul's bass behind the vocals. Yes. Because Paul's bass is both keeping up and emphasizing the beats of the vocals. And, and Ringo's cymbals as well, they shine through this. Again, more of the tambourine. Yep, more of the tambourine. Ringo has kind of carried over the playing style that we were just talking about in Michelle, the little tappy tap tap style. I think it works perfectly with this. It's, it's emphasized. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not yep. saying that no. as a negative. I'm just saying that you know it, what... What we said in that song is like, you know, Ringo got to a style for a record and, and would hold on to that style for the entire record. The harmonies, they're great, but they've been mixed down slightly so as not to overwhelm the lead. Yes. And then the little bit of George Martin magic, it doesn't sound like a harpsichord anymore. think it sounds almost clearer than it did before you know the bit at the end where it's sort of like the speeded up because it's speeded up anyway on previous mixes you can hear where it's speeded up because like almost like that but this it, it still does that but it almost sounds less brushed at the end if that makes sense it sounds like a speeded up piano only because that's what we know it is what it is if we didn't know what this is it would sound like something from outer space it still could be you never know. <laughs> okay, and, and then at the very end, uh, Ringo picks up the tempo a little bit, and he goes a little bit harder, a little bit more energetic, and, and that's a nice bit of contrast. Yeah, where he actually brings more of the actual drums as opposed to the tappy-tappy, the, the cymbals. I know I'll often stop and think about them In my life, I love you more I love you more. 
track number 10, If I Needed Someone, this now sounds more beatly to me, whereas all the previous mixes have emphasized the birds-like nature of the tune. I love this mix. The stereo pan vocals of George, John, and Paul, you can hear distinctly their voices. And the guitars, these guitars sound nice. Paul's bass is great. Ringo drums again. Tambourine, really nice mix. George's lead, it almost has a little bit of the ethereal pepper sound to it. This is moving forward to not just revolver, but pepper. I mean, I can see how this would evolve to something like a Dr. Robert guitar line, uh, you know, which is a John song, but all the same, you know, it's got that sort of feel to the sound of the guitar and the, the feel of his playing. Had you come some other day then, it might not have been like this, but you see now I'm too much in love. Your number on my wall And maybe you will get a call from me If I needed someone I love the feel of the tempo change right when you hit and you come some other day then george's vocal just slips ever so slightly into the background and you fall into the tempo change it reminds me of something that george martin used to say where sometimes george harrison when he sings sometimes occasionally george harrison's voice is almost like there within the instruments on occasion the within you without you thing Exactly. You got the vocal, you got the orchestra, you got the Indian instruments, and George is the perfect counterpart to both the orchestra bit and the Indian instrument bit. He is able to fully reflect both pieces. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like George's little harmony bits over the solo. And, and again, more R's. They can't think of lyrics, so. All right, the last of the Rubber Soul tracks, uh, Girl. And, you know, we were talking about that some of the Lennon songs now sound like solo Lennon. This sounds like something off of Mind Games to me now. Yeah, that guitar line now on, on, on this. That might work. Yeah, it, it's almost the same as the kind of thing he would do on Jealous Guy. The backing is not completely, but kind of similar. We need another mashup coming for, for Love Part 2. <laughs> John's isolated vocal, particularly on the opening part, one of the things I love out of this set is when they're almost a cappella to open songs. Is there anybody going to listen to my story All about the girl who came to stay Is there anybody going to listen to my story all about the girl who came to stay. The kind of vocal that we didn't know John was capable of until the solo years. No, no. And it, it's his pleading. Because like you said, you know, is anyone going to listen to my story? It's like he wants someone to talk to and it's got that sort of feel to it where nobody's listening to him. It's like, come on, somebody listen to me and just be there for me. 
harmonies again three-part harmony and the breadth of the voice as well that's clear you know that, that's a big part of the song well what's clear is that they were lying to us all this time that's john imitating the sound of taking a toke uh, oh yes that can't be anything else he could have fooled us before with the previous mix here no that's not just john taking a deep breath that is john inhaling yes is all these years am i right in thinking that they are singing tick 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 that is what they're singing is doo doo is the official lyric but yes that is what they're singing and that comes out too you can almost hear the giggle in their voice as they're doing the harmony yes i'm surprised they don't giggle with the harmony that they do on the next song though. she's the kind of girl who put you down when friends are there you feel a She's looking good, she acts as if it's understood She's cool, ooh, 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 girl. They almost sound like naughty schoolboys here I think the whole song is a case of naughty schoolboys, really Kind of What's gluing it together and, and making it solid is that Lennon vocal Which is, you know, not anything to take out of hand is once again pleading john lennon and again this now makes some more sense to john lennon's comment that he wrote the song about an imaginary woman who would become yoko ono you, you can hear him a he's bored with his wife yep. cynthia was not this mystical figure who would take him away from the humdrum and so he's imagining some other woman the woman that yoko ono would become now whether that is because that's who yoko ono was or that's who john lennon wanted yoko ono to be and he kind of made her into that maybe maybe not that's for another show but all of that is now evident in his lead vocal that's something for that other podcast another kind of mind yep off you go hey calm yep you know, once again, as we've said, the acoustic guitar, you can hear John's fingers picking on the guitar. Yes. That is all the original material off of the Red Album. Uh, the other mixes were available from the Revolver SDE last year. If you want to mention anything about any of them, uh, you can. They are in order paperback writer track 12 that's another one that's got some nice dirt on the on the electric guitar riff sound it is different than what we have thought before the mal isolations present you with something that uh, feels significantly different yeah there's life in there it's not just these guitars doing this that and the other because you've got the separation in there you can you can hear the difference between what all the different guitars are doing because has this got three guitars in it, Paperback Writer? All three of them. John, Paul and George playing bits. Paperback Writer really like it, you can have the right You can make a million for you overnight If you must return it, you can send it here But I need a break and I want to be a Paperback Writer Paperback Writer You can still distinctly hear the Frere Jacques backing vocals. Eleanor Rigby, track 13. Yellow Submarine, track 14. Taxman, track 15. Got to Get You Into My Life, track 16. I'm Only Sleeping, track 17. 
Here, There, and Everywhere, track 18, which is a gorgeous mix, by the way. That was my favorite mix of the Revolver Deluxe set, actually. Here, There, and Everywhere. And then Tomorrow Never Knows, so. I like that mix as well. All the jumps but, uh, parts jumping at you. You can also hear how Mal has improved in just the last year. The isolations definitely sound at least a little bit better than what they were able to get for Revolver. Yep. But I mean, particularly the drums. The drums weren't quite as crystal clear on the Revolver tracks as they were on some of the other tracks. What other bits jumped out at me without going on to them too much because we've discussed them before. I love the bit towards the end of Yellow Submarine where, where everybody suddenly starts singing. And is that Mal and Neil joining in with them at the end as well? Well, I mean, they had that whole party there. Yeah. Patty was there, and I think Mick may have even been there, but miscellaneous other rock stars. Is that one of those where Terry Gar said that she was there? We had a whole show about Terry Gar, didn't we? We or did. Almost a whole show about Terry Gar. All right. So that is the Red Album Plus, well, the news. Once again, uh, we'll miss you, Danny. You were a big part of what it means to be certainly a Paul McCartney and Wings fan. Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, if you can, I suggest that you look for a set a compilation, if you can get it, of Danny's songs, because there's songs from before Wings, during Wings, that you can listen to that I think people should listen to because they're just not, you know, I, I think that he's, yeah, almost his career there, yeah. Go and listen to the early Moody's. Yes, and listen to his 1967-68 material. That's incredible. Is it the Electric String Band, did they call it, or whatever yep. that he was with? Yeah, they're, they're, they're great. And then Balls had a record, right? Yeah, and then he was, of course, on was he on two of the albums that Ginger Baker's Air Force as well? Yeah, he's played on a lot of stuff. Well, all right, so we will be back next week with a new show. Take care. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. song told a story, uh, a very sort of bitter little story, but a charming one as well. And it also, for the first time, used a different sound. It was typical of the Beatles continually wanting to have new experiences in their, in their sound. And um, here, for the first time, we had George playing sitar, which he was kind of struggling with at that stage, but it was sufficiently distinctive to add a, uh, just the right little bit of touch to Norwegian wood to make it a memorable one. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.